You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Good morning. Great to see you. Want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. We got a lot of territory to cover this morning. Acts 3 1 through 4 12. It's a daunting task. Uh, the topic this morning the true truth about Jesus. And I trust that this topic, as powerful as it was back then 2,000 years ago, will resonate with us today of who Jesus is what he came to do, and how that applies to our life. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, we also have, of course, the, um, the text on the screen, but we will be in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and go all the way through verse 12, but the passage culminates with this truth. And that's how Luke writes. He gives us these great summary statements. So follow along. Peter declared, there is salvation... In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now, many of you who grew up in the Christian tradition might say, boy, that's, that's a beautiful truth, right? I, I love that. But do you realize that is a hard pill to swallow for most people today in 21st century? And the reason it's hard, folks, is it's exclusive. There's only one way to God. It's the name of Jesus, and Luke uses this, this Greek word, day, translated must a lot. He is emphatic, there's only one way, and it's the name of Jesus. Now think about the implications when you share that with the average person on the street. What do they say? It's too narrow. It sounds intolerant. You guys are bigoted. What's the deal? What about all the other world religions? Are you saying Christianity is the only way? Jesus is the only God? Well, if that's a hard pill to swallow, let me show you one more verse that will lead us into our passage this morning. It comes from Jesus himself. It's John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I want you to think about this for a moment. That is Jesus Christ himself declaring that. It's just not Luke. It's not an apostle. It's not a follower. These are Jesus' words. And he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to the Father is through me. Notice he didn't say, I am a truth, a way, a life. In the original language, the definite article is a pointer. It's a very important thing. I am the truth, the only truth. And friends, in a pluralistic society, again, that flies in the face of people, and they get frustrated with Christianity. And if you're here listening this morning, if you're wondering, wow, is Jesus that unique? We're going to see how unique he is. Is Christianity that exclusive? The answer is yes. And it's not because we're intolerant or bigoted or narrow. It's just that we follow the teachings of the Bible and Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, <clears throat> Alan Bloom, 
wrote a book, university professor, all his life, gave his life to the university. He wrote a book a number of years ago, The Closing of the American Mind. You might want to read that if you're interested in a topic like this. Alan Bloom said this, and I'm going to paraphrase. He said, if there's one thing that's absolutely true about freshmen coming into the university, it is this, that they believe truth is relative. In other words, it's up for grabs. You choose your truth, I choose my truth. And then he says this, and this is the kicker. And then after four years of higher education, the university has confirmed what they already believe to be true. And so we live in a day of relativism, that we can't define absolute truth. And yet in Acts 4.12, and we're going to see why this conclusion was given, and it's powerful as to the reason why. That if we're going to be saved, saved from our sins, if we're going to have a relationship with God, it's going to come through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Now, Alan Bloom's uh, conclusion many years ago that the universities are promoting relativism. So parents, please pay attention where your uh, children go to school. But I want to show you a video. It's rather current about this issue at the university. And I'm not here to pick on anyone. I want to be sensitive to people's worldviews. But I also want to address the idea that you can know absolute truth found in the person and work of Christ. Let's take a look. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. As a woman, what would your response be? Good for you, okay, like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. So if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. 
if you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Last time I uh, was at my doctor's office, I wanted to be five six, and the nurse said, "No, it's five five and three quarters." <laughs> After watching that video, I've come to a conclusion. I appreciate her conclusion more than ever. <laughs> you know, and folks, we, we do laugh and there's some levity, but you know how real that is for our culture today? It's realer than we know. And then when we go to the Bible and we start addressing truth, things about God, Christ, religion, purpose, meaning, value, origins, do you know how hard the conversation then gets? This topic is absolutely essential. If we're going to be reaching out to our neighbors, who's your one, reaching kids in park, we have to understand that the Bible declares that God is the God of all truth. Do you realize that? The Bible says that the third person of the Trinity is the spirit of truth. We've already seen John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, Jesus said. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. The church, Paul said, is the pillar and foundation of truth. We have the privilege to speak to one another, speaking the truth in love. We are a people of truth. And friends, if we eradicate that foundation stone, we have no more message. We have no gospel, which is good news. And so today, look at the title of the message. I got somebody's attention the other day when I said, the true truth about Jesus. Why true truth? Doesn't seem like you need to modify truth, right? Truth is truth. Well, Francis Schaeffer, 20 years ago, came up with the phrase true truth, and he was genius in saying it. Here's why. Because today, there are so many definitions of what is true. That's relativism. You choose your truth, I choose mine. It's a flip of the coin. If I want to be 6'5", count me in. There's no basis for truth. So here's what Francis Schaeffer said. We live in a culture now that needs true truth. And so today, we're going to discover the true truth about Jesus. And it starts with a person. If he is the way, the truth, the life, I believe he is. If he is the only name under heaven given by which we must be saved, then we have truth in a person that leads to truth in a principle, the word of God. Your word is true. And so if you have your digital worship guide, I encourage you to take that out. If there's ever a day to take uh, notes, it would be today because I believe this talk is so relevant to the average person we're talking to. And friends, please hear me, even in the church. Do you realize the latest data by Barna says 50% of Protestant pastors believe truth is relative? 50%. That grieves me. 
shocks me, but it grieves me. If we don't have a basis for truth, absolute truth, what do we have? We've just got moral principles. And so, stand with me if you would. We're going to, again, go through a lot of territory, so uh, work with me, stay attentive. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll move all the way through Acts 4.12. We're going to pick up a little bit of... Uh, uh, next week from this passage, so uh, we'll connect some dots in these two weeks. But Acts 3, 1 through 11. Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. And a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful, so he could beg from those entering the temple complex. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, and boy, these are beautiful words. I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once, his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up. He stood, started to walk, and he entered the temple complex with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you imagine what that would have been like? All the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gates of the temple complex. So they were filled with awe and astonishment. Who wouldn't be? And what had happened to him? While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran towards them in what is called the Solomon's Colonnade. Please be seated. Now, I love to take you to Israel as best I can. This is a good time to do it. We use this phrase at West Wind, context is king. Let me show you a few pictures of what Luke is talking about from Israel today. So one of the things that is being highlight, highlighted here is a gate called Beautiful. These are the southern steps in Israel. This is best we can discern is where the church was born in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came. This is absolutely where Jesus taught. He taught at the southern steps because you would ascend to worship. Those are Psalms of Ascent. To the Temple Mount. That's what you see there today. That's the Dome of the Rock. And he's sitting at this gate called Beautiful. And he was lame from birth. He's begging. And people day in and day out contributed, blessed, met his need. Let me show you one more picture. And I love this next one. This is called Solomon's Colonnade. And basically, this is a model that is in Jerusalem. But look at the space. All of a sudden, he gets healed. He goes into the beautiful gate. He's in the temple complex. King Herod spent 46 years building this place of worship. They're going up there to pray. They're going up to worship. A man gets healed. He comes into the temple complex along Solomon's colonnade. And boy, oh boy, what are they doing? They're standing in awe of God. God showed up. A lame man from birth was healed in the name of Jesus. And so, folks, why do I bring you to Jerusalem now? Because Luke is factual. He is actual. He's giving you real gates, real places, real time. And that's going to contribute to one of our points this morning for the message. 
And so if you're taking notes, let me take you to the blessing this morning. God has a solution to the problem of the worldview that truth is relative, and it is to embrace the idea that Jesus is the true truth. And I do think the modifier is important today because people are so confused about truth. He is the true truth, the absolute truth. He is the one and only. And this morning I want to share with you three truths about Jesus. Let's take a look. Truth, true truth number one. Jesus is God's resurrected and glorified servant. I hope we never take for granted the beautiful and powerful reality that Jesus Christ has raised from the grave. We celebrate it globally. It's called Easter. Over two billion people. But track with me. Peter's going to preach now. Look what happens. This man gets healed. There is a standing in awe of God. People are wondering, gosh, what just happened? Peter's going to tell him what happened. Another sermon's coming. Look at verses 11 through 16. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? And then notice where he goes. And this is constant with Luke. He goes back to goes forward. He goes to the Old Testament, to the prophets, to the narrative of Israel to contemporize who Jesus is. And so he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, Barabbas. You killed the source of life. Notice this beautiful phrase, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now the kicker. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So, the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of you all. Now, skip on down to verse uh, 10 of chapter 4. Peter's sermon continues to the leaders who wanted to shut it down. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, notice that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you. Friends, that's powerful. A lame man gets healed. Silver and gold have I none. He enters the temple complex. He starts to celebrate God. He's standing in awe. Can you imagine being lame from birth and being healed? People are standing in awe. How did this happen? What is going on? The Sanhedrin's frustrated. Where do you get this kind of authority? Notice the authority. By the name of Jesus. By the authoritative name of the Son of God, the resurrected Savior. By his name, this man was made whole. We can hang our hat on that. We're talking about true truth this morning. If you go to Webster's Dictionary, you know what Webster will say, and I like Webster. He had a lot of deep Christian things to say. He basically says this. Truth can be defined that which conforms to reality or fact. Hang your head on that. I'm five foot five and three quarters. That's a fact. I'd love to be six five. Just isn't true. 
That which conforms to reality and fact from that which was, that is, and that is to come. It has to be true. It has to be empirical. And these things are facts. They go back. And so I want to share with you three facts as you're sharing the good news with your neighbor, who's your one. You're telling the truthful story about Jesus. He's the only way. Three facts you can hang your hat on. Number one. Fact number one, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical reality. Now, again, you might say, boy, that's just so simple. It is simple, but it's complex because the critics and historians have to grapple with a lot of stuff, and I'm going to share a few things. Number one, look at verse 15. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. I don't think Peter's angry. I don't think he's mean. He knew his countrymen didn't get it that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was honest. You guys put him up at Calvary. You chose Barabbas over the Son of God. You really are the ones that could be indicted. That's a historical fact. But folks, reality, and we've talked about this all through Luke, we put Christ there, right? Our sin. He paid the debt for you and me. So let's not think micro. Let's think macro. He paid for the sins of the whole world. My sins. Thank God for that. So think about a few things about the historical Jesus. Number one, how unique the resurrection is to Christianity. Go around the world. You'll see the religious leaders. Guess what? They're still in the tomb. You can go to Israel today. We have a good sense of where he was buried in rows. Guess what? That tomb is empty. He's alive. Would you agree? We celebrate that. Hallelujah. Ten accounts in the New Testament alone talk about Christ being raised from the grave, and people experience that. This is history in the making. It's the God story. Now you jump to extra-biblical literature. You're familiar with names like Josephus. Roman historians like Tacitus and Pliny, they talk about the resurrected Christ, the Jesus who was the way after his resurrection. They had no motivation except to give history, to tell the story. But then, folks, look at this. You know how many churches there are around the world today? As best we can discern, 2.2 million churches. How did the church explode? from a ragtag group of guys who were just fearful, hiding out in a room. Their Savior was dead, but he showed up. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. And he commissioned them. And then Peter preaches his first sermon. 3,000 get saved and are baptized. The church explodes. Friends, the beautiful thing you're going to see in the book of Acts is this. Every sermon that's preached, there's not one exception, every sermon that's preached hangs its hat on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So where do we hang our hat? On the historic reality. Christ lived. Everybody knows that. He taught. We see the influence, right? But he died, was buried, rose from the grave, and that's where we put our our trust, our hope, and faith. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, if Christ is not raised from the grave, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Flip it around. If Christ is raised from the grave, your faith is meaningful, and you're forgiven of your sins. That's the hope. Fact number one, the historical reality. Fact number two, the resurrection of Jesus is an eyewitness reality. Look at verse 16. 
And folks, I want to encourage you, books have been written on the validity and the importance of the eyewitness accounts in the gospel. Very important thing. So verse 16, Peter says this, we are witnesses of this. If you go into a criminal court and you're a first person witness, do you think your witness has weight? Of course it has weight. First person witness is a big deal. That's what we're getting here. Peter says, I walked with this guy, hung with this guy. I had my ups and downs with this guy. I saw him teach. I saw him heal. We hung out. I saw him crucified. I saw him raised from the grave, and he's alive today. Peter's a firsthand witness. But not only Peter, go to 1 John 1, you'll see that. What we've seen with our eyes, handle with our hands, touch, concerning the word of life, we declare to you. What a beautiful thing. Let me ask you a question. If you're going to write a book or uh, make a movie on the Titanic, which of course has been done, uh, what would be your best source? Would just be something random, just, you know? 705 people were survived from this uh, tragedy, maritime tragedy. But in 2006, let me show you the picture of this gal. Her name is uh, Lillian Gertrude Asplung. She died in 2006. She was 99 years old, almost turned 100. She was five years old when the Titanic went down. She had her whole lifetime to tell her story with 704 other people, and they told it. Now, I don't think the movie Titanic with, you know, the girl on the front of the boat probably didn't happen, right? But we know enough of what it really did happen. But you go to the eyewitnesses. Let me share with you what Peter says, and I could give you so many verses here. 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, I love this phrase, we were eyewitnesses of what? His majesty. What a beautiful term. His glory. We saw the resurrected Christ. His glory. What a beautiful statement. Peter says, count me in. I'm going to testify to the day I die. And by the way, history records he died a martyr's death because of his belief as an eyewitness. So we got the historical reality, the eyewitness reality. Fact number three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a transformational reality. And friends, why do I put that there? Because I think it's just the Bible. This is the Bible. The Bible is a book of transformation, right? Who is exhibit A in Acts chapter 3 and 4? It's the lame man from birth who no longer is lame. He gets up. He starts walking. And I love it. He starts leaping. Can you imagine? In Solomon's colonnade, they anticipate thousands of people sought. And when the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4 are getting on the apostles' case... He said, listen, if you're going to indict me for, for something beautiful that happened, something, a God work that took place, feel free to indict. They couldn't because everybody saw it. His life was changed. We've been through Luke a year and a half, right? We've seen a lot of changed lives, haven't we? Lepers who were quarantined came to Christ. Prostitutes washed his feet Chief tax collectors hated by everybody, not Jesus. I must stay at your house. 
We're going to hang out, Zacchaeus. We're buddies, remember? He was indicted for loving sinners. That's the kind of Savior we worship today. And then Luke closes, I think very intentionally, a thief on the cross, a capital criminal, comes to genuine faith in Christ. Life transformed. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What a way to conclude your days. I'm going to heaven. I'll see you there. So, can you hang your hat? There's so much more, but that's where we want to go with this. We have facts. We have history. We have transformed lives. We have eyewitnesses. And so, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any person is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is passing, the new is coming. Guess what? You today are eyewitnesses. Paul says you are living letters known and read by everybody. Is your life telling the Jesus story? Do they see the light of the glorious gospel? Is your, your life salt, preserving, bringing light into darkness, hope into a community park for the Jesus story? Next week, we have beautiful believers' baptism. We have a number of children signed up to be baptized, and they're going to tell their transformational story. That's what the gospel does. Let the little children come to me all the way on up to seniors. Thank God for that. True truth number two, and this is very important, folks. Please stick with me. Jesus is God's sovereign plan and answer for sinful humanity. Again, Peter's just bold. He's a good preacher. Take your cues from Peter if you're going to be preaching. I'm speaking to Jason Dean right now because he's going to be preaching in a few weeks, right? Or is it a few months or a few years? He's one of our elders, and uh, we're talking about getting our elders back up here to preach. So Jason's already sweating. <laughs> yep, way to go. So here we go. Uh, Acts 3, 17 through 26, very important passage. And now, brothers, he's speaking to his countrymen. I, I, I feel passion and compassion from Peter. I think he's hurting for his kinmen, kinsmen. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you did this in ignorance, meaning crucified Christ, just as your leaders also did. So he's, he's showing them, you just didn't get it. You didn't have revelation. You didn't understand this was the Messiah. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Remember Luke? It's all about fulfillment. Luke keeps coming back to it. Fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. Therefore, what are you supposed to do? Repent, turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. That's God's goal. That seasons of refreshing may come for the presence of the Lord and that he might send, and I think it's very personal, you, Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome him until the times of restoration of all things which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Notice how far he goes back, folks. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him in everything he will say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Keep going. In addition... All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with the ancestors, saying to Abraham, and I love this phrase, 
and all the families on earth will be blessed through your offspring. That's Genesis 12. That's the promise to Abram. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So two sobering facts. Fact number one, sin separates people from God. Peter really wants the audience to know this. He keeps coming back to the same basic themes. Folks, I hope uh, this doesn't get redundant, but this is the gospel. The gospel basically says God sent his son to save sinners like you and me. Where do we get that from? Look at verse 19. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet, meaning Jesus, will be completely cut off from the people. That's not God's goal. God longs for relationships that's restored through Jesus Christ. He longs for that. That's why he sent his son called a mediator, a bridge builder. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But sin separates. Listen to Isaiah 59.2. But your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God. Your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. Sin is a barrier, it's a separation. Ezekiel the prophet, chapter 18, 20. The person who sins is the one who will die. Sin separates, it brings spiritual death ultimately. But then a beautiful verse. Romans, chapter 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. We've seen that in Ezekiel. We've seen that in Isaiah. But, one little conjunction the gift of God is eternal life through who? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, that's the good news. That is the gospel. Yes, sin separates. And it's a sad thing when we say no to Christ, when we diss him, when we think he's just one of many, when we just kind of put him on the shelf, we do our own thing. It leads to separation. And yet, through Christ, God wants to restore. And we see that, fact number two, God blesses all families on earth through Christ. This is Genesis 12, folks. This is the ultimate promise. Look at verse 26. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant, sent him to you to bless you by turning each of you from your sins. So let's talk about the gospel a little bit. I've said this before and I'll say it again. There's such a lack of clarity about repentance. Repentance means you recognize by God's spirit, by God's word, that you're a sinner and sin separates. He does that work by his spirit. He brings a conviction. We saw that already in Acts 2. But when the spirit and word's conviction comes, you're going one way, the wrong way, sin way. You turn, you go God's way. Some of you know the name Deion Sanders, remember him? Kind of that arrogant football player, had it all but had nothing. The Billy Graham ministry invited Deion Sanders to speak at one of the crusades. He got up, shared his testimony, you can watch it. And he said this, I thought it was pretty revealing. He said, if God can save me from alcohol and greed and sex, and the list goes on and on, he can save you. <coughs> What basically Sanders was saying is, he says, I had a change of mind about who I was. I was a sinner going the wrong way. But then I recognized Christ as Savior. And I didn't want to live like that. Now I want to go God's way, the right way. New creation. It's not only a change of mind, it's a change of heart and direction in life. 
That's what true repentance means. And the good news is, God wants to bless you today through Christ. Isn't that great news? In a world that is so filled with just painful news, such hardship and loss, we have the gospel to declare to people. Now, finally, true truth number three. Jesus is God's exclusive way for salvation from sin. And I'm just going to abbreviate this here. You can read the passage there, and he goes into a little bit more depth. But again, going back to verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. That's the gospel. It's one way, it's God's way. Let me see if I can just kind of bring this to a close, sharing a story. A number of years ago, Ellen and I were returning from Houston to Minneapolis, and uh, really bad storms in Minneapolis, a lot of wind, and so our flight was canceled twice. We were very close to getting a hotel, and then our flight was called. It was a bittersweet call because the storms were still there, we were watching the weather, and yet we boarded the plane. We're wondering what this is going to be like to touch down in Minneapolis. Well, when we got into the Minneapolis airspace, it was tumultuous. You ever been on a plane where it just, you're going like this and it drops? It's like, whoa, what just happened here? And you grab hold of your wife and say, man, hang on to me and I'll hang on to you to see if we'll survive this. Plane's doing this. And finally we touched down and we're high five and the whole plane's like celebrating. It felt like New Year's or even that the Vikings won the Super Bowl, something like that. <laughs> That's never happened, has it? No. Um, maybe I should say bills. No, okay. Uh, and so a few days later, this is true, we're hanging out with Robin Schroeder at our church, who's an air traffic controller. She was on duty that night. And we were talking about, man, that was an awkward thing. She says, Keith, here's the deal. We closed every runway that night except one. So you're telling me there's only one runway to come into MSP, big airport? Yeah, one runway. So I thought about it. I said, wow, that's interesting. Just imagine being the American airline pilot, 703, coming into MSP from Houston. Hey, this is uh, 703 coming in, air traffic controller. Hey, we, uh, we just have one runway. We've closed everything else at the airport. Well, you know, I'm sorry. I like to come in on my runway. Uh, sorry, it's uh, come in from the east on 10A. No, no, I like west. 10B, and they go back and forth. The air traffic controller says, land at your own risk. I think that's true to the worldview of today. For some reason, we're too arrogant to think that maybe God has truly one way. It's his son, Jesus Christ. That somehow he is a sovereign God seated on a throne, loves us, redeems us from our sin, does something exceptional. God the Son dies for us, sheds his precious blood for us, gives his life a ransom for many, and somehow we get to choose another way. There's some arrogance there that we need to repent of. God loves us. He redeemed us through the precious blood of his Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Acts 4.12, no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So here's the question today. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Have you claimed him as the only way? Folks, that's not an arrogant message. That's not a bigoted message. That's not a narrow message. It's a true truth message. You could hang your hat on that.
Pray with me, please. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that by your spirit and by your word, like you did in Acts 2, you would bring that conviction. It starts with sin that separates, Lord, and I pray that we would see that Jesus did the most wonderful thing for us, redeemed us by his precious blood. And so, Father, help us. Open our hearts. Help us to turn from sin, to turn to the Savior. Have a change of mind, a change of heart, and then a change of lifestyle. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.